0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on.
0: Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to
2: iPhone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...
3: What is it all about? There will be multiple companies, I believe, that will be exposed as hucksters in this process. And will that tar our entire industry as being the same? Right. I think that will be a challenge, you know, being able to separate, like, which companies are kind of fudging it and which companies genuinely have technology.
1: Hello and thank you for tuning in to Danny in the Valley this week. We have a great show for you. We're reaching back, way, way back, nearly five years to bring on an early guest to talk about everything that has transpired. Since what must have been a high point in his life at that time, his appearance, his first appearance on Danny in the Valley way back in 2018. I'm talking about Michael Selden. He is the co-founder and CEO of Finless Foods, which has been toiling away on a very hard idea, manufacturing tuna rather than fishing it. So this is a, a clean meat company and in the clean meat world or synthetic meat or, you know, cellular agriculture world, whatever you want to call it, certainly in the kind of clean fish world, Finless has been at this longer than most. In March, Seldon raised $34 million dollars in the hopes of bringing the company's first product, Bluefin Tuna, to market. So it's been a long, very windy road and there's still some way to go, but it's always fun to have people back on years after they first appear on the show full of hope and optimism to give an update on kind of how real life is building a company over you know many years and that's what you'll get in this episode and obviously what the company is doing is trying to solve a really big problem the world loves seafood and but we're dramatically overfishing which is having terrible effects on the oceans uh not to mention this the way we get our fish at least in america to the supermarket and to our homes crazy you'll have to listen to find out for yourself but i think you'll agree it's it's all kind of mind-boggling but anyway we cover all of that and more uh including the kind of the company's very early you know, tough, rough days. So I think you'll get a lot out of this. So I will now stop talking and hand over to my conversation with Michael Selden, the CEO and co-founder of Finless Foods. Enjoy. Welcome back to Danny in the Valley. Thank you. Before we got on, I was going back through the archives. You were on this podcast four and a half years ago. Which is crazy.
3: Yeah, I remember you showed up. We were like renting lab space in this tiny little (laughs) spot uh, in Berkeley. And I'm now sitting in our enormous pilot facility in my own office. So it's a bit of a different game.
1: Oh, cool. And you also have a beard and longer hair. These are
3: both true things. Yeah, the longer hair is really like a COVID thing, but we're almost three years into that. So I guess that's just how I look now. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, so last time I was there, as you say, you were in some rented lab space. I remember kind of a a bubbling, big beaker type thing, which I think was some experiment happening, maybe making some salmon or something. So what has happened in the past four years, starting from where you are right now?
3: I asked myself that question really consistently, actually. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a lot. So I mean, like, you know, back then, like, we were really working on like the basics of our technology. We were really building. The, the core tech that would become finless. Um, and you know we still have the same mission, the same dream, which is you know, to, be, uh, to create a future for seafood where the ocean thrives, which now we've actually gotten written down and, and streamlined as a mission. Um, and we do that by creating alternative seafood. Um, uh, but now we can do it a lot better. So back then, we were really building the basics of this technology, which meant um, doing a lot of different experiments on a bunch of different species of fish in order to build up this data library that we then focused on our goal, which is bluefin tuna. Because the goal of the company near term is bluefin for the price of albacore.
1: What does that mean?
3: It means basically producing the highest quality tuna that you can, the highest quality bluefin that you can, and getting the cost down to the point where it can replace canned tuna eventually.
1: Right. And I'm a a refined man, a modern man, if you will. So I should know the price difference between some really good bluefin versus the canned stuff you get at Safeway, but what kind of what difference are you talking about in terms of price?
3: So it can be catastrophically large for the for the really high end stuff. We measure ourselves against the more normal high end stuff, uh, like grade A, not A plus, sort of thing. But basically, when you're working with cultured meat, you're thinking about wholesale prices in general. Contrasting things mm. like chicken, pork; these are around like two dollars a pound wholesale. Beef a yeah. closer to five or six dollars a pound wholesale. Albacore, which is sort of the lower end for tuna, is typically between $10 and $16 wholesale, and then bluefin typically is around $40 a pound wholesale. Wow. So it makes our job a lot easier, and that's why we wanted to focus on tuna right off the bat.
1: How does that make your job easier if you that sounds like a big gulf to bridge.
3: Well, you know, a lot of these companies that are are companions in this industry are focused on things like chicken or focused on things like pork. Yeah. And since culturing a cell from tuna costs more or less the same as culturing a cell from pork, we have a much easier job than they do in that respect.
1: I see, I see, I see, I see. Because your price point, you have to reach a much higher price point than they do. That's
3: right. If we can get it under $40 a pound, we can undercut the current bluefin market.
1: So where have you got to in that process? So you're saying you're creating this data library and then deciding to focus in on bluefin and how far are you on that journey
3: Pretty far right now we're at $150 a pound for our cell cultured bluefin and that's not you know when you're talking to people about like price per pound it's useful to think about like what percentage animal cells their product is a lot of people in our industry are very focused on animal cells as an ingredient and so they're only using like 2% animal cells 5% animal cells We're actually using the same percentage of animal cells that you would find wild caught, which is around
1: 80%. Well, hold on, hold on a sec. Hold on. How is a natural bluefin tuna that has been caught out of the ocean? 80% animal cells. Wouldn't that not be 100%? It would
3: not be hundred (laughs) percent. Although that's a really good question. And I get why you ask it. Um, There is a scaffolding. Like there is actually a glue that holds these things together that creates a structure. I see. And that isn't cells. And so, you know, that makes up the rest of sashimi or a filet or whatever else you're eating.
1: Got you. I see. Um, so you've got to one hundred fifty. Where did you start? What was the kind of how far down have you come? Oh,
3: we started uh, at around $300,000 a pound.
1: Pretty expensive. I remember when I was when I went to go meet you. I was like, I'd love to do a taste test, and I'm. I think you kind of you demurred. You're just kind of like, ah, yeah, maybe at some point in the future. Now I understand why. Well, beyond
3: it being expensive, actually, at that point, we also just had a bottleneck. Like we didn't have a lot of cells to actually give someone. Now we have mm-hmm. a pilot facility. Like we actually have large scale bioreactors bubbling away. You saw like a little tabletop thing. You yes, your tops and those experiments were not even successfully yet because it was so long ago. Um, and it wasn't even tuna at that point. Um, we were working with salmon, like you mentioned.
1: Yeah, I remember salmon. Yeah, that's right. So now
3: we actually have bluefin tuna cell lines that we've established and we've become experts. We were the first people on earth, to our knowledge at least, to um, sequence the bluefin tuna genome. We actually had it sequenced ourselves before the publicly now accessible bluefin tuna genome came out. Um, we've created these bluefin tuna cell lines, which we believe are really the only of their type, the only muscle cell lines for bluefin that exists on earth, because we want to be the first people to really realize the full promise of cellular agriculture. There are people who are putting these products together that are a few percentage cells, and they can get under the price point. So they can make meat that's cheap enough.
1: So what's the rest of it? If it's a few percent of these cell lines that you're actually culturing in a, in a facility, what's the rest of it?
3: You know, they're sort of pursuing like an impossible foods model.
1: I see. Got you. Reconstituted pea protein and other stuff.
3: Exactly. And then on the other hand, you have companies that are actually creating wholly cellular products, but that are astronomically more expensive than what you can find in terms of animal based products. And so, what we want to do and what we've been able to do is really realize both of those. You know, we're making something that is comparable from a price perspective and is a whole cellular product.
1: And you mentioned the presence or the existence, rather, of kind of a publicly accessible bluefin tuna genome. Where did that come from? Is that a big deal? Like, why does that exist?
3: It exists because it's a good thing to have in general. You know, it's good to do science, good to do basic research. But one of the ways in which a publicly available bluefin genome is very useful is for attempts at bluefin tuna farming. Because still to this day, there really isn't a way to, in a cost-effective way, farm any variety of tuna at scale. It's one of the last things that are eaten en masse that isn't farmed. It's all wild caught for the most part.
1: Oh really? I didn't realize that. Is that just be the nature of the fish? Basically, they're just running wild, effectively. Yeah, they're kind
3: of finicky. Um, They're they're really they don't like being in captivity. It's not great for them. In fact, there's really there's only one place in North America where bluefin are in captivity, which is the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's very difficult to do, and um, people have been attempting to farm all varieties of tuna for a really long time. Yeah, it's been a multi-decade project, and so far it hasn't yet been successful. So that's why we were invested in by a Japanese seafood company by um, an aquaculture-focused VC as well, because they see this as really the only method by which you can farm bluefin. They're finicky, they're complicated, and then most of all, um, they have a really long sexual life cycle, which makes doing experiments on it kind of rough. So if you are doing salmon, mm. the sexual life cycle, six months. That means you can do an experiment in six months. But for bluefin, it's over three years.
1: Wait, wait a minute. So ha- ha- three years?
3: Yeah. So you know, if you're trying to breed them and create closed life cycle, that's your iteration time, which is a bummer. That's forever.
1: Right, 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 right. Got gotcha. you. So you guys have your own cell lines, you've established these, and I presume this works like the other cellular agriculture, clean meat, whatever you want to call them companies, Where is this? you take a biopsy, you put it in a growth medium and let that propagate? Yeah, that's right. Uh,
3: that's the basic way that it works. You know, we, we try and break things up between like there's the R&D process and the production process. The R&D process is what you're saying. We pull cells out of an animal. We stabilize that cell culture, make it into a cell line, which means it's growing out continuously. We don't need to keep going back to the animal over and over again. Formulate a feed for that, which we call a media, feed it to those cells, let them grow. And then we start the production process. Once we have the cell line and the media developed, we put the cells basically into big tanks. We give them the food, let them do what they do, propagate out. So that means that there's a ton of them. From there, we slap them down onto a scaffold. What we were talking about. You could think of that like the steel beams in a, in a new constructed building. Yeah. Um, and let the cells differentiate. So that means they turn into muscle cells, fat cells, connective tissue. They twist together to form multinucleated myofibers, and that is muscle meat.
1: Got you. And I know in the early stages of the kind of this clean meat movement, let's call it, one of the issues was. Everybody was using fetal bovine serum because it's like like steroids or like a super fuel that really, and it was extracted from, in a really horrendous way, from the fetuses of cows. But it was this kind of magic stuff that really helped these cells propagate and grow and multiply. A lot of the other companies I've talked to have no longer used that and have replaced it. Have you got there? And if so, how?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, we've replaced it. And we've replaced it with a whole host of things. And the idea here is to replace it with things that are sustainable. You know, so we've replaced it with like salts, sugars, amino acids, and proteins that are created via fermentation. So not super different from anyone else. And you know, this was always a problem that was solvable because there's plenty of serum-free media that already exist out there. They're just cell line specific. So there's like serum-free media for our cell lines that are used in pharma. Like the main cell line that everyone uses in pharma is called cho cells which stands for chinese Mm -hmm. hamster ovaries so if you want to grow chinese hamster ovary without serum you can people don't want to eat that (laughs) for obvious reasons um but you know this ability to do that was always there it's just it has to be catered to your specific cell lines
1: got you so you've kind of cracked this code so to speak so you've got the cell lines there propagating on their own and you can kind of put them in and the growth medium just so people listening understand is that like a soup, basically?
3: Yeah, it's a liquid. It sloshes around like a liquid. We keep it in bottles like a liquid.
1: And then you put those in a tank. And how long before, presto, Changeo you have a bunch of meat?
3: So we run our tanks um, for about a week. We let the cells propagate for around a week. And then from there, we let the cells differentiate, like turn into the cell types that they need to be. Um, that process takes another few weeks. So it's, it looks like it's about a month-long process, basically, to create the anatomy that you want.
1: And you're, you're starting with what and you end with what in terms of like quantity?
3: Yeah, so you start with a small seeding density. You measure it basically in like grams per liter. And then you want to, you know, uh, whatever your doubling time is for your cells, like our cells, you know, animal cells generally can double at around 24 hours. Um, so every 24 hours you have double what you had. You measure that by a density. So you start off with a, a fraction of what you want. You double it over the course of a few days for us over the course of about a week. And at the end, you have all the cell mass that you want. You take a little bit of that off, throw it back in because you want to start seeding the process again. But then the vast majority right. of it, you take out, let it differentiate, turn into the meat that you want to sell to people.
1: Got you. And what is the scaffolding? Yeah, it's plants.
3: You know, Eventually, I think people will be able to create scaffolding that is on a chemical level, like the same thing that people are eating today in meat. Um, But right now we're just going for something because the scaffolding doesn't really confer any nutrition uh, in in a very meaningful way. So all we really want is for it to have the same like functional properties. We want it to give and impart the same texture that people are used to in meat.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. So is that scaffolding something you can see with the naked eye? Yeah. 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 And what does it look like?
3: It depends on what scaffold you're using. But I mean, it kind of looks like a colorless, spongy version of the thing that you really want.
1: And the mouthfeel is the same as, or close to, the real deal.
3: For us, yes, uh, we've been able to get the mouthfeel of actual bluefin sashimi.
1: And so, where are you now? So, it's so four and a half years ago, you were in this little lab. You're, you know, still figuring out the science. How much money have you raised since then? I'm sure what you this has all been pretty expensive, um, especially now if you're in a pilot facility. Yeah. So, how much money have you raised, and the kind of what comes next?
3: Yes, yeah, so we've raised in total $50 million so far, and that's gotten us a pretty good distance. I mean, we've established the world's first bluefin cell lines, um, muscle cell lines. We've you know, got this pilot facility up and running. We're going through regulatory with FDA. We have these prototypes that taste incredible. You know, We can make tuna with no mercury, no plastic, no environmental destruction, um, no kill animals. Mm. And what comes next is getting this to market. So it's really just focusing on regulatory right now. We have a big regulatory team at this point because that's like the bottleneck for us. And then beyond that, it's like the construction of a uh, production facility. This pilot facility is a test run. Like We got it okayed by FDA. We're using it to get our FDA approval. It's not going to be a serious revenue driver. It's just a proof of concept for regulators.
1: Right. And so when you're talking about building an actual facility, what would the capacity of something like that be? Like How much tuna you know, or actual fish equivalent could you produce, for example?
3: In the facility that, I mean, you know, we still have to fully design the whole thing, but the plans that we're working on right now would be a facility that is large enough to serve um, a few percentage points of the entire American uh, tuna
1: market. That feels like a big plant.
3: It will be massive is the, is the goal, yeah.
1: Wow. What is the process of getting FDA approval? Because I feel like I don't know how long and winding that path may be. And also, following on from that, have you done any testing in terms of actual consumer appetite for this and how you would kind of pitch it?
3: Yeah, in terms of consumer appetite, um, we just launched this plant-based product, so entirely made of plants um, that we're producing nearby here uh, up in Vacaville. And, um, that we're trying to use to see like what the consumer appetite is for alternative seafood, mm. there hasn't been like a wild success story in terms of alternative seafood yet. We know plants aren't exactly the same, but we just want to see what we can learn from this as a process. So it's helping us. We now have like a marketing team and a sales team and a BD team and all these relationships, we have a, um, Gordon food service as like a large scale distributor for our product. We're building relationships with chefs. So the chefs are interested and we think that's really the key because chefs are tastemakers. If chefs are into a product, we think that these consumers will end up being into a product. So we're, we're making ourselves into a very chef-forward company. We're trying to meet people where they're at in that regard. In terms of FDA, FDA has been really good to work with. Basically, they've just required that we have three large-scale bioreactor runs with nutritional data. Once we have that submitted to them, they said that they will be 9 to 12 months to give us like a final verdict. There's going to be some conversation in there as well. But basically, we're doing those bioreactor runs right now in this facility.
1: Now, I don't know if there's a corollary here to say oat milk. Like our kids love oat milk. They're a bit lactose intolerant, but they really like milk. So we kind of go with the oat milk, but then you look on the side and there is about a billion different ingredients yeah. in there. And it's like, is this actually a good alternative? In other words, because it feels like it's, there's so much, it's so processed that it does make one wonder like, hmm, is this the best idea? Is there something similar to what you guys have to do to kind of get, again, because ultimately this comes down to taste and like people wanting to, you know, there's certain people who like, I'll love a, you know, a bean burger or a mushroom burger, but other, most people just want a burger and the same thing with tuna, I would guess.
3: What's nice in cell culture is that we have a much easier time in that regard because a lot of the things that like drive the flavor and drive the nutrition are things that we feed to the cells that doesn't end up going into a person. It doesn't end up on the nutritional label because it's a feed element. Like when you buy a hamburger, it doesn't list everything that was fed to the cow. It's just, right. Um, And we have the same framework because that's what makes sense. We're feeding the cells things. They're not, you know, we're not feeding people these elements. And in terms of oat milk, I mean, I really do love that as an example because oat milk basically provided something that is better. Than what people already had. People are like, well, I want something that's like bitter and coffee and that works for me as a lactose intolerant person. Uh, I also am lactose intolerant. I also am a huge oat milk fan. And so, you know, oat can provide that. And so we want to do the same. We want people to buy this not because it's sustainable necessarily. Like we are going to make a sustainable product. That's our goal. Our mission, you know, is, is for the ocean. But we think that the way to really make a difference is to convert over people who don't really make buying decisions based on that because ethical consumers are an extremely small segment of the market.
1: Yeah, you want to go mass market. You want to get people who are just like... The other um, kind of example that occurs to me, which I've talked about before in this podcast and other contexts, is like um, electric cars and specifically the electric pickup truck. And like if you can get people in Texas... To be like, no, actually, I want a pickup truck, an electric truck, because it's better and it's cooler and it's more fun and all that stuff. Like, it's just as good or better in terms of a product, regardless of all the kind of good you may be doing. If you can pull that off in pickup trucks, then you've kind of, EVs have won, basically.
3: I 100% agree. Like, yeah, you and people are buying these EVs in part because they're just like, it's fun, it's fast. You, know, you don't have to learn how to drive stick shift and you can still have crazy acceleration uh, that wasn't available to people before. And then on top of that, it's just like, no one wants to pay for gas. The electricity is considerably cheaper almost all the time. You know, There's still the inconvenience factor of like, well, if you don't live next to a bunch of superchargers, you're kind of in trouble and, and whatnot. But,
1: yeah. you
3: know, the idea is that we can iron that out and we want to do the same thing. Like, hey, you like tuna? Well, here's tuna with no mercury and no plastics. You can eat it every day of the week instead of being limited by mercury right now. Um, and We can make it much fresher. Uh, American seafood is not fresh. Over 90% of our seafood is imported because even the seafood that we make, we generally ship out to places like Thailand in order to process it and then get it shipped back.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. That's a fun fact. Yeah. So wait, so 90% of our seafood is imported. I believe it's 92. And we have like thousands and thousands of miles of coastline. Yeah.
3: We catch plenty of fish. We just ship it elsewhere to process it and then get it shipped back.
1: Why is that?
3: Because it's really cheap because the fish itself is like a whole animal and it needs to be cut open, cleaned, have all these other parts removed that people aren't going to eat. Like there isn't a market, there isn't much of a market in America for selling someone an entire salmon. A, they're actually kind of large and people don't realize that. But B, there's a lot of stuff in there that people just don't want to deal with. People are like, I want the filet and that's it. And so you need cheap labor that can cut that open because there's no machine right now. That can really like properly dice up a fish in a way that's cost effective. So it's shipped out to places where labor is cheaper than America, sliced up and then sent back to here, which is nuts because like, how is that cheaper? Uh, it blows my mind. Like the yeah. cold storage of sending it across the Pacific twice is, is nuts to me.
1: Yeah. Cause you're basically sending gigantic freezers across the Pacific twice. That's
3: somehow cheaper than, than labor in the United States compared to labor in places like Thailand.
1: That feels totally crazy.
3: Yeah. It's definitely crazy from an environmental perspective, that's for sure. (laughs) But apparently from a business perspective, it makes sense. It's how things are done.
1: Right.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
1: Planning for your next trip? And so that kind of gets to part of the, my, my next question, which is the why here. Like, so what problem, and I know this is in a way an easy question, but I'm sure it has many layers to it. Like, what is the problem you're solving here or problems? I
3: was about to say, there's a few, like one, I mean, like, you know, I, I don't think we need to be killing animals for food, but I don't think that's like the mainstream problem that most people care about. Like another huge problem is that we are like fishing the oceans clean. Right. Like we want to be able to take pressure off the oceans and producing this stuff on land using cellular agriculture and plant-based technologies is just a way to get fresher fish to people and a way to take pressure off the oceans. People have been seeing this as a problem for a really long time. Wild caught fishing has been stagnant since the 80s. We have not been able to get any more fish out of the ocean since the 80s, but more fish is being sold because fish farming has started up as a way to take pressure off the oceans. And today, like industrial fish farming started
1: in the 1980s.
3: Today, industrial fish farming makes up about 50% of seafood production globally.
1: 50%, percent five zero. It's really impressive, isn't it? Wow, I had no idea.
3: Yeah, 50%. And all of that progress was over four decades. It's crazy fast scale-up, honestly. I think fish farmers don't get enough credit for that because it's, it's impressive. Yeah. But there's two issues with this, one of which is that the acceleration is slowing. We're running out of places to put this. these fish farms, um, especially because... You know, it's not fantastic for the local environment in a lot of occasions. And so places like California have made it essentially illegal to do fish farming off of our entire coast. Oh, really? We have less than 30 fish farms off the coast. But um, my understanding is that most of them are actually not fish farms. They're they're seaweed. Some of them are oysters, um, but not a lot of actual like fish fish. In fact, I don't know if we have any. I see. And then the other thing is that there are plenty of species that actually can't be farmed at all, like all varieties of tuna still can't be farmed economically, like I was talking about earlier. And so we're attempting to solve this problem of like, okay, the ocean can't take any more stress than we're giving it. And in fact, it probably needs a little bit of pressure lifted off a bit. Fish farming was supposed to be the solution here, but it has not yet changed wild caught at all. Our hypothesis is that the world doesn't know how much fish we want. Um, Every year, more fish is made and more fish is consumed. So if we want to take pressure off the oceans, we need to find something that scales really, really quickly on top of fish farming. The other problem that we're solving here is that like what we were just talking about, Americans have no fresh fish, more or less. It's very, very hard to get. And so what we can do is create like a fresh domestic or even local supply of fish for people, even when they have absolutely no contact with lakes, rivers, or oceans. And beyond that, we also can make tuna with no mercury and no plastic. So make fresh fish with no mercury, no plastic locally and at least, or at least domestically to take pressure off the oceans. Those are like a set of problems that we think we can solve.
1: Mercury and plastic. Can you explain what is happening there?
3: Basically, mercury and plastic uh, is just a reality of the ocean due to things like climate change and also just due to us throwing a lot of trash in the ocean. These things, like plastic, degrades down into microplastics and it ends up um, at the bottom of the food chain and fish near the bottom of the food chain. And that isn't much of a problem, um, but the thing is these fish are eaten by fish that are above them on the food chain, yep. which means that a carnivorous fish is then getting 100 fish worth of plastic and mercury inside of it. And then apex predators are getting a hundred of those carnivorous fish, each of which have a hundred of the herbivorous fish. So it just gets bioaccumulated up. So when you're eating an apex predator like tuna, it's like it's considered the jaguar of the ocean. It's one of the fastest animals on earth. Uh, nothing eats it but us. Like sharks don't even eat them. They're too fast
1: they're too fast for sharks they are too fast for everything
3: more or less they're they're enormous and they're they're really uh, beautiful we think of them as like this goofy canned thing but they're they're apex yeah. predators
1: i need to impress my kids later do you know how fast they can swim i wish i knew
3: actually i i don't um i can google it it says 43 miles per hour says wwf
1: wow that's fast yeah
3: not bad so anyways, they have this high concentration of mercury in plastic. Now, mercury, because of that, um, the EPA and FDA have recommended that uh, people don't eat more than two servings of tuna per week in order to keep your mercury count down.
1: So just that fact alone, and maybe this is just me, but that I didn't know that. I didn't realize that that was there was so much mercury in tuna that that's a thing. Like, don't eat too much per week because it's dangerous.
3: Yeah, it's um, it's funny. I don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems like people have not seen this recommendation from FDA and EPA. No. Um, and it seems like either people are unaware of this, or aren't super aware. Like my mom, um, she has to watch her mercury intake because she had mercury poisoning, and it's very, very difficult to come back from. Um, it's something that bioaccumulates mm. in your body. We're not really sure how to get rid of it. And so sometimes I talk to people who are like, "Yep, I have that as a problem. I like have to constantly watch my mercury intake." And for them, we can give them tuna in a way that they actually want.
1: Wow through this process through you know going back again to the kind of the bubbling beaker in your borrowed lab to where you are today was there a moment that sticks out where you're like this isn't gonna work or oh my god it's all going wrong or just like what am i doing with my life (laughs) or anything like that
3: well um i never had the what am i doing with my life moment in in part just because like you get a degree in biochemistry and molecular biology Unless you go get a PhD, there's not a ton of options for you. We actually had three co-founders at the beginning. Two of us were working as, as research techs, and one of us got an MBA. Um, and the one who got an MBA actually had a, a very high-paying job. So when we started the company, you know, Brian and myself, my co-founder, were just like, we don't really have anything to lose. We, we hate our jobs. We get paid almost nothing. Um, so let's just try this out and see what works. Right off the bat, we got paid more than we did at the hospital, which is great. Even though our salaries were (laughs) abysmal for San Francisco, like absolutely some of the lowest of the low, it was still like 150% what I was making at a hospital in Manhattan. Our third co-founder was like, yeah, I have a decent paying job, actually, I'm not going to do it. And so she just never moved with us and then we transferred her over to an advisor. So when did I think this was not going to work? There were were definitely moments. I mean, like the one that really sticks out to me really is... um, you know, we were like, all right, so we have this idea of like how we're going to um, gather this data and then use that in order to create bluefin tuna cell lines. Has anyone created bluefin tuna cell lines? Not really. Like one person did it at one university and we talked to that guy and he's like, it was an accident. I have no idea what I was doing, which is kind of um, <laughs> He was helpful in a lot of ways, but he, he like was like, I don't know how to recreate this. But basically we were like, all right, so we've gathered the data, let's apply it. And so we went on the hunt because you need to basically hunt for bluefin to, to, to find them fresh. So we needed a lab. That could actually do animal cell culture we needed it close to a place where we could somehow interact with tuna as they were caught and that's really hard to find there's three places on earth that we found and we scoured the planet that have bluefin material that is useful for cell culture close enough to a lab where you can actually get that into the lab fast enough so it doesn't get contaminated and does actually get you the cell cultures that you want
1: so in other words you have to it's a place where you can kind of get a fish that is freshly caught enough where you can take A biopsy and get it to a lab to do work that you need to do. That's
3: right. We were sampling them on the boat. Wow. We were sending out my co founder, Brian, and some of our employees, and like it was rough. And I mean, I'm for me, rough secondhand. I was not there. What was rough was coordinating three different research labs of about 10 people across the planet trying to do science that no one has ever done before. Trust breaks down real fast, especially when you like aren't great at hiring. Mm. Um, and just like, it was a lot of fighting because everyone just felt that they could do it better wherever they were. It was a really rough time. And I was just like, how are we ever going to create these cell cultures this way? We're doing something that's never been done. We're split up across the entire planet. The time zones are totally killing us. We're like interacting with these like boats and these like fisher folk. And like, it, it was it was really messy. And at that point we were just like, can we actually do this? Is this actually going to work? Like, there's a reason nobody else is doing this, and so I think that was probably the lowest, the lowest point. It was like a little bit after after you interviewed us, basically.
1: Right, right, right. So where were these boats, and like, where'd you end up getting these the fish from?
3: So we had a lab in Rhode Island. We had a lab in uh, Southern Europe um, on an island, a, a specific island, and we had a lab off the coast of Japan. Um, and those are the three spots that we got our original cell cultures from and our original data from from Bluefin.
1: Wow. And these are actually commercial fisher fishermen who are kind of going out in the ocean. And you have, presumably you sent out staff to be on these boats or in the harbor waiting for when they came back?
3: Yeah, it was mostly on boats. We interacted with everyone. We have talked to sport fishermen. We have talked to fish farming researchers. We have talked to commercial fishermen and everyone in between um, it is just a, a whole the whole gamut of things we met a lot of characters I mean we learned we learned a lot turns out when you land your first tuna you're supposed to eat the heart we weren't really sure that that was like something that they were making up to Razzle. wait what so some of us have eaten raw tuna heart as like our because we were catching fish um, or at least present for the catching oh of a fish uh, we learned a lot from these people it's it's a uh, it's an interesting world
1: I'm sure it sounds like it so here we are in 2022 you have yourselves you have there's another it was a blue nalu in san diego uh you have upside foods in emeryville eat just i can't remember where they are in the bay area uh, alameda alameda i mean there's several dozen cellular agriculture clean meat these type of companies what are the obstacles that remain for this to become an actual thing beyond just like a super duper niche product that a few people will pay for or can afford because it does feel like the, the potential is vast. When you talk to people like yourselves or like upside foods, I tried some of their chicken and again, it's kind of like, wow, if you could actually just scale this up, you know, we kill 9 billion chickens a year. That's a pretty big thing. When you talk about a third of the planet being used to grow food, to then feed to animals that we then kill to eat. But just from a science and or business point of view, how hopeful are you that this can actually become a real thing?
3: I think there's maybe like two gates that we have to pass through for this to be a real thing at this point. One, there's a lot of companies like you're mentioning, mm-hmm. um, and these companies are all funded by a venture capital. Venture capital does not create the best incentives for telling the truth. There will be multiple companies. I believe that will be exposed as hucksters in this process. And will that tar our entire industry as being the same? Right. I think that will be a challenge, you know, being able to separate like which companies are kind of fudging it and which companies genuinely have technology. It's hard to say, you know, like Theranos ruined things for so many other blood testing startups that were doing totally legitimate work because they were just like, that's eh, all bullshit now. You know, Theranos was nonsense. So all of this is nonsense. So we'll need to survive that. In terms of the tech, I mean, like some people are creating like really impressive prototypes. Like you had Upsides Chicken, which you mentioned. You know, like New Age Meats' sausage has been really impressive. Um, I think our bluefin sashimi is is pretty damn good. I've I've been eating it for a while now, and and I I think it's it's like really comparable to, to bluefin sashimi. And scale up. There's a lot of pilot facilities out there. I've seen plenty of large scale bioreactors bubbling away, producing a decent amount of cells. I think the next Gate, you know, on top of the how will we survive the like hucksters getting like separated out is regulatory in the US. Mm. I think once the US can get a company or two through regulatory, it will be like a floodgate. I think the rest will be able to get approval. I think other countries will set up processes that are similar. And I think we're really, really close to that. We co founded AMPS, which is the trade industry group for cell cultured meat and seafood companies. We're working with FDA. I don't know if, if you or your listeners saw, but I mean, Biden just put out an executive order specifically to forward um, alternative proteins, calling out sub cultured meats and seafood specifically, um, wants to like expedite the regulatory process as well as like create incentives that can help balance the playing field for our industry. I think that's a hugely good sign that Biden is talking about this and also kind of nuts because we were the first self-cultured seafood company and Biden's calling that out specifically. And I'm like, the president probably knows who we are. That's really cool. Right,
1: right. Yeah, yeah.
2: But yeah, that'll
3: be the next big factor. You know, do the regulators continue doing the good job that they're doing and continue creating a smooth path to market for us that also like actually test things rigorously? Or do they change things? Do legislators step in and like try and model things up? I think that that's a question as well. But I think if we can get through those two things, I really think that this will totally be normal and be the way that people eat meat in very large amounts within our lifetimes.
1: Well, so I have two questions, then I'll let you go and it's about the last thing you just said which is this becoming a thing that just kind of everybody is consuming. And one is a question around the cost and you've gone from 300,000 to 150 which is obviously an incredible reduction but 150 is still a long way away from 40. So scientifically is there any reason why you can't get there? And I asked because I talked to a guy for a piece I did on all of this earlier this year. And he was just like, the precision fermentation process, you know, the bigger you get, the more waste cells it creates. And it kind of, it's not simply build a bigger tank and it just works. You know, like there are some real scientific hurdles that he was saying, like, I just don't see how this works on a large scale. And then actually, even if you do do prove that, because that feels like it gets to the cost question as well, then it's like we would still have to build out, I presume, tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure to make a dent. Again, we talk about 9 billion chickens or 35 million cows or whatever we're, that we're slaughtering each year.
3: It will not be cheap to change the entire global meat supply. I do agree with that. And that <laughs> will be an expensive endeavor. Uh, and and it absolutely, and there's no way around that. I, I think who you're talking to is completely correct there's this really great article in The Counter. I don't know if you've read it, but it basically sort of makes that argument of just like, there's no path forward with precision fermentation.
1: And I think I spoke to the same. There's the author? Not the author, but the the guy he quotes, who did like a two-year study and came to this conclusion. And he is kind of the scaffolding of that article, basically.
3: Here's the thing. I think that well, I can like quibble with like individual like statements that he said in that. I think the overall thrust of what he said is correct, and I know that that sounds weird coming from one of the guys who's like you know been one of the first people in this industry and who like runs this company. But I want to point out that what he's talking about is correct, and what I mean by that is he has said there is no path forward with suspension animal cell culture to creating commodity pork and commodity chicken, and he's right. Hmm. There is not a path using suspension bioreactors to doing $2 a pound meat that is fully cellular. Um, I completely agree. He actually is a little more pessimistic than than some of us, but he says that suspension can like top out around $10 a pound. If you can do $10 a pound, you have the entire tuna market, um, which is $42 billion globally. And that's kind of why we started our company, because we saw that exact thing. Now, is there a reason why you always have to do suspension culture? Well, right now, it's easier. Suspension culture, you can use off-the-shelf equipment. You can just buy your bioreactors, and they work.
1: And suspension culture is like basically keeping it bubbling and keeping it suspended in the liquid to catalyze the fermentation process.
3: Yeah, cells floating around free in a tank of liquid. There's limits to it. Now, there's not limits biologically on how dense cells can grow. And we know that they can grow as efficiently as they do in our bodies. And so you know the scientific first principles are there to get yourself way below wholesale prices. Because when you're making a whole chicken, you're burning a lot of calories because that chicken is moving around. You're growing things like feathers that are not useful. You're growing tons of organs that are not used. You can have a more efficient process than that. It will require new bioreactors. And um, that's something that the article doesn't really touch very much. Um, and I get why, you know, it's if a company is like, we're going to make chicken as our first thing. And we're going to you know, get it underneath cost, they're assuming that they're going to invent and scale up an entirely new type of bioreactor, which is a big thing to do. Yeah, but it's a small thing to do. If you are a company that's attacking the $42 billion tuna market with tuna that is cheaper than what's already on the market using typical bioreactors. So You know, I think that what he said was correct, but I don't think it's an indictment on the entire industry. I think the strategy is go for things that are above $10 a pound wholesale and get yourself standing up as a company, get yourself as a brand, get through regulatory, get people used to you. And from there, use, you know, yourself as a large company to pull in the money that you need either via revenues or via more uh, capital infusion from investors to build these larger bioreactors, because these bioreactors that can do better efficiencies... They exist at small scale already. There's plenty of companies working on things like this. And it's like already very much done on like the two liter scale or on like the 10 liter scale, like benchtop bioreactors that can do better than suspension exist. What he's pointing out is they don't exist at the 25,000 liter scale. And I do want to say that also he's entirely correct. You can't just make a 300,000 liter bioreactor for animal cells and be like, we've made our costs work. Like it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Um, It does top out. Like generally when pharma uses animal cell culture, it's around 15,000 to 25,000 liters. Yeah. And that's because bigger than that, you end up with contamination a lot of the time. And like, you don't want to go bigger than that. But even just using the 15 to 25,000, you can get to $10 a pound or, or below, I would argue, pessimistically, if, if you're the guy in the article. And with, you know, things like perfusion bioreactors, you can go way below that. So I think people just need to be thoughtful around how they're staging their companies in this industry and not think that like the only way forward is to shoot exactly for the goal of, of overturning the entire meat market with your first
1: product. You need a Tesla Roadster. Exactly.
3: A tuna Roadster.
1: <laughs> um, well, we're going to have you back on. Hopefully not another four and a half years. That feels <laughs> like a little extreme. Yeah. Um, but um, keep us appraised of, uh, of the progress. And uh, I wish you all the luck. Because obviously, as discussed, there's lots of big problems to, to shoot at.
3: Thanks so much, Ben. I really appreciate it.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Michael for taking the time, for coming back on, being kind of a, a DITV alum. Thank you all for the ratings, the reviews, the spreading the word, telling your friends and neighbors, your loved ones, your, your friends, your enemies, et cetera about this podcast, it really does help um, other people find it, so thank you for doing that. I'm off this week, so you also not find anything in the newspaper, on the times.co.uk from me this week. I am going to be, as you hear this, probably traipsing around somewhere in the mountains of Montana, hopefully not getting eaten by a bear. So, you know, fingers crossed. Anyhow, thanks as always for listening, and we will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.